This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on Boris Johnson's latest of many scandals, Treehousegate. In light of the plethora of period dramas currently in production, Charlotte Higgins asks, why are Brits still obsessed with the Regency period? After comedian Joe Lysett was contacted by the police following a joke he made, Brian Logan looks at what happens when laughter and law collide. And finally, Lisa Niven Phillips asks, is it the end of shampoo? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Just a heads up, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, it's no secret Boris Johnson is a fan of Tory donors paying for his home decor. But as columnist Marina Hyde points out, his latest plans for renovations makes it hard not to question the Prime Minister's financial morality. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. In many ways, it was impressive to get a whole two days into Boris Johnson's World Statesman tour before it emerged he'd tried to get a Tory donor to fund a £150,000 treehouse for his then-infant son. No matter what Commonwealth, G7, NATO posturing comes after that, you'll have found it rather difficult to suspend your disbelief. It's like hearing that Churchill whined and whined to get some mid-century sad sack to buy his grandson a pony. Fine, 30 ponies. The story of the treehouse somehow still retains the power to shock, if only as a reminder that there really is no beginning to the Prime Minister's financial morality. As reported by The Times, Johnson and his wife plan to build an eye-wateringly expensive treehouse in the grounds of Chequers in autumn 2020, potentially funded by the Tory donor Lord Brownlow. He was told it would look terrible, a government source told the paper, yet the PM pressed ahead. It was only when the Johnson's security staff objected definitively on the basis that the treehouse was visible from the road that the welfare king and queen of Downing Street had to reluctantly abandon their plans. 
at the time, their son would have been about six months old. Who builds a baby a treehouse for £150,000, which can currently buy you a three-bedroom, semi-detached house in Wakefield? Answer that question without using a four-letter word. But then, it's all there, isn't it? From the mind-boggling discovery that this got all the way to design modification stage, to the reappearance of the unflushable Lord Brownlow, fast becoming the zelig of stories in which a greedy and venal Prime Minister apparently takes him for a soft touch. The fact that a child's pleasure dome was being decreed at the very same time Johnson was demanding his MPs voted against a plea to extend free school meals for the poorest children over the Christmas holidays locates it even more firmly in the realms of the grotesque. One Conservative MP, Ben Bradley, claimed the latter scheme would simply lead to increased dependency on the state. Needless to say, Bradley has never uttered a word on the worry of increased dependency on rich donors and continues to back Johnson to the hilt. Still, after the £840 a roll gold wallpaper and the rest of the Downing Street flat refurbishment saga, it's good to see the holder of the highest public office in the land amassing almost enough mad folly projects for a whole series of grand designs. Do picture the Johnsons telling the cameras. I think we'd call our aesthetic for the project MP's Expenses meets Louis XIV. Think Duck House, except with bulletproof glass and costing a full 91 times as much. Had the Prime Minister been allowed to do what he wanted, it would have been good to see the usual political interviewers make way for Kevin MacLeod, who would don his hard hat of hard-headedness and observe mildly to the couple, well, actually, you've gone an infinite percent over your budget, haven't you? Because none of this is your money! The less entertaining reality is that the MP's expenses era now feels like the halcyon days of taking responsibility, given that Peter Vigors, the MP who tried to get his duck house funded, never even succeeded, but did at least end up quitting when his attempt came to light, for what he admitted was a ridiculous and grave error of judgement. All of this, then, is the inescapable backdrop to the Prime Minister's current gadding about on the world stage. Are Downing Street strategists hoping that fake Boris, the statesman, can save real Boris, the treehouse guy? You can see why fake Boris is the preferred role. This year, support for Ukraine is almost the only policy Johnson has delivered on. Everything else is either you turned on, deliberately designed not to work, or pulled out of his arse with no thought as to what it even is, let alone how you'd achieve it. So, yes, Johnson is taken seriously in Ukraine, where he is rightly perceived as top of the tree in terms of wartime allies. But it's increasingly difficult to see how people back home are supposed to forget the grubbier reality of what he truly is. Do you really want to hear about wage restraint from a guy who wanted someone to spaff 150 grand on a treehouse? Johnson has never received a great bounce for his leadership on Ukraine, with many holding a view along the lines of, he did what any of us would have done. None of which is to denigrate the UK's clearly hugely valued assistance. But it must be said that in straightening times, another view can be now heard rather more loudly than before.
Recent polling suggests the mushrooming cost of living crisis has focused concern away from justice for Ukraine, with a report by the European Council on Foreign Relations, covering 10 European countries, including the UK, pointing to a growing gap between the positions of many governments and the public mood in their respective countries. This could leave even fake Johnson in trouble. Acting like a world statesman might be the right thing to do, though actually being one is obviously better. But even that could well end up a liability for a man increasingly cemented in the public imagination as selfish and feckless. What are we making sacrifices for, people might wonder, if not yet another of his vanity projects? That was In This Government by Grand Designs. Johnson has spat the budget and the roof is leaking by Marina Hyde. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. Next. The Regency period from the early 19th century is experiencing a renaissance throughout British popular culture, with a plethora of films, TV series and books currently hitting our screens and shelves. Charlotte Higgins explores how our times are reflected throughout modern adaptations of Austen-esque love stories and why the genre is as popular now as it has ever been. Read by Evelyn Miller. The Regency, that narrow slice of history between 1811 and 1820, occupies a vastly disproportionate place in the British, and increasingly the global, imaginarium. Those nine years when the future George IV reigned as Prince Regent, owing to his father's incapacity, have recently birthed a second series of the frothily preposterous Netflix series Bridgerton, a second series of Sanderton, based on Jane Austen's unfinished novel, and a new film version of Persuasion, with Dakota Johnson as Anne Elliot. With Dakota Johnson as Anne Elliot. The Regency romance literary genre, a bottomless well of Austen-esque love stories, has produced a summer bestseller this year in Sophie Irwin's A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. Another, Suzanne Elaine's Mr Malcolm's List, has been adapted into a film starring Frida Pinto, also out this summer. You may think that the general favourite of Austen's novels, Pride and Prejudice, would be owed a rest from adaptation after Greer Garson, Jennifer Ely and then Kira Knightley's Elizabeth Bennet, after the zombie version... P.D. James's crime version, the Bollywood version, Helen Fielding's Bridget Jones version, the gay podcast version, the hilarious Scottish stage version, Pride and Prejudice, sort of, a West End hit that's returning home to Edinburgh this autumn. But no. The Netherfield Girls, a new Netflix series, is due to be released later this year, with teen comedy star Matrei Ramakrishnan, the latest actor to tackle Elizabeth. The Austin's novels endlessly generate fresh versions, though, is not a sign that her adapters have nothing new to say. Quite the reverse. The Regency has become, according to Jenny Davison, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and author of Reading Jane Austen, a blank space where you can wrestle with whatever you want. The popularity of the Regency is nothing new. In fact, it is the sheer familiarity of the tropes of the Austenesque, 
Dances and drawing rooms, curricles and curtsies, frocks and froideur that allows it to occupy such a dominant position in popular culture. Don't you feel that you'd know what to do if you found yourself in a Regency drawing room, forced to make polite conversation about the doings of the local militia, which was the premise of 2008's Lost in Austin, in which a Pride and Prejudice fan found she'd switched places with Elizabeth Bennet? Under such circumstances, it is easy to forget that our received picture of the Regency is itself a confection and an invention. Bridgerton, with its counterfactual vision of a black Queen Charlotte and black ducal families, as well as its stylized production design, seems more self-consciously artificial than, say, Andrew Davis's Austin adaptations for the BBC in the 1990s. But, argues Ollie Blackburn, director of Sanderton, those earlier adaptations were as fake as Bridgerton is now, It is rare that a historical piece is really, truly interested in what the past was actually like. Indeed, our vision of the Regency is a highly partial visual interpretation of a historical moment that was itself ruthlessly delimited by Austen for her own artistic purposes. Raymond Williams' classic 1973 book, The Country and the City, offers a useful reminder of just how selective Austin's fictional backdrop was through his comparative reading of three authors. Austin, the journalist and politician William Cobbett, and naturalist Gilbert White, who all lived within a generation and a few miles of each other in Hampshire. Each saw the world quite differently. White was engaged in close scrutiny of the non-human, and Cobbett offered passionate political commentary alongside accounts of the poor and dispossessed, beyond the pale of Austin's rectory gardens and handsome estates. Cast back to earlier screen adaptations of Austin, and the fact of their speaking to the moment in which they were made becomes much more visible. The mise-en-scene of the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice, with Laurence Olivier as Darcy and its screenplay co-written by Aldous Huxley, feels jarring now, with its costumes of the 1830s rather than the 1810s and its strong southern belle energies. The film's giant bonnets, its enormous acreages of silk and, goodness, does the film rustle, bespeaks a fascination with antebellum finery. It feels more part of the world of Gone with the Wind than England in 1813. Some adaptations, of course, modernise things completely. Clueless, 1995, still stands as the best and funniest of screen Emmas. It's Beverly Hills high school setting turning out to be the perfect 20th century backdrop for the social snobbery and misguided matchmaking that play out in Austin's Highbury. The Austinesque has tended to enjoy larger waves of popularity during economically difficult moments. The first great revival of popular interest was in the 1930s, when Georgette Heyer began to publish the first of her fun, Austin-inspired romances, such as Regency Buck and The Corinthian. The second came on the heels of the recession in the early 1990s, bringing the BBC's Pride and Prejudice, Amy Heckerling's Clueless, Robert Mitchell's Persuasion, Ange Lee's Sense and Sensibility, 
scripted by Emma Thompson, and a little later, Patricia Rosimer's Mansfield Park. The last, intriguingly, forced audiences to examine the source of the eponymous estate's wealth, adding scenes alluding to the exploitation and abuse of enslaved people on the Bertram family's Antiguan plantations. The scholar, Edward said in his 1993 essay, Jane Austen and Empire, had argued that the novel is based in an England dependent on those discreetly mentioned plantations, despite the fact that the narrative is largely engaged in resisting or avoiding that other setting. The appeal of the Austenesque when the chips are down is partly straightforward. Austen's niece Caroline was once asked by a reader what her aunt had felt about the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. It was a question that had never before presented itself to me, wrote Caroline, and though I have now retraced my steps on this track, I have found absolutely nothing. Austen's fictional world, in short, is a place walled off from the distressing facts of politics, war and violence, and necessarily, of course, from pandemics, social media, racist police shootings and the climate crisis. The real Regency was a time of corn laws, economic problems owing to huge spending on the war, the Peterloo Massacre and the failed harvest of 1816, which caused widespread hunger. Such events are so rigorously excluded from Austen's fiction that Mike Lee's 2019 film Peterloo, about the radical politics of the era, hardly reads as Regency at all. The particular nature of the 1930s Regency revival casts light on how we receive the Austenesque now. Heyer was writing in the wake of the first critical editions of Austen's novels by the scholar R.W. Chapman, published in the 1920s. As Davidson points out, these editions are especially mesmerised by the materiality of Austen's world, they include reproductions of Regency illustrations of carriages and Parisian headdresses, a.k.a. bonnets. Georgette Heyer's Regency romances amp up this fascination further, providing almost fetishistic descriptions of hats and dresses. These draw not on Austin, who is usually reticent on details of attire or objects, unless advancing a specific point about a character, but on the hectically detailed contemporary accounts in journals such as The Gentleman's Magazine of attire worn by the rich and famous. When Austin adaptations hit the screen in the later 20th century, this material world, already so cherished by Heyer, took on an even greater significance simply by virtue of the change of medium from page to screen. This vocabulary of settings and things, wonderful Georgian houses and parks, elegant costumes, has by now become an aesthetic and a style, one that implicitly but insistently tells us things were better once. The most obvious characteristic of the Regency dramas of the current moment is their diverse casting. A different pool of talent has stepped into corsets and breeches. From Adua Ando's Lady Danbury in Bridgerton, to Pinto and Chopé Dirisu in Mr Malcolm's List. 
Bridgerton does more than employ a wider selection of actors. It sets up a speculative, fictional relationship to the historical record that demands the suspension of disbelief, akin to how one might accept the premise of intergalactic space travel in Star Trek. It is exceedingly hard to imagine a way history could be counterfactually engineered to come up with its multiracial English beau monde, the real wealth of which depended on the labour of enslaved people in the Caribbean. By drawing attention to its fictional status so boldly, its historical adviser Dr Hannah Grieg argues, Bridgerton invites conversation about the actual status of black and South Asian people in Britain in the long 18th century. Others are less certain. Blackburn worries that though for audiences, the effect of seeing people who look like them on screen is enjoyable and empowering, the historian in me is not entirely comfortable. It gives a false impression of the past, and in general, I don't think that's helpful. A film that in some ways takes a very different tack from Bridgerton, The New Persuasion, directed by Carrie Cracknell, is also explicitly anachronistic. In the script there is talk of downsizing, a playlist, and of marriage being transactional, as if modern women have been parachuted into a Regency setting that they must negotiate and can comment upon. Dakota Johnson gives quite a lot of eye roll to the camera, fleabag style. Laura Wade, in her recent play The Watsons, a witty adaptation of Austen's unfinished novel of the same name, comes up with another solution. She inserts herself, that is, a character named Laura, into her Pirandello-flavoured drama in order to grapple with the problem of how a 21st century writer might, or might not, reconcile herself to the constrained world occupied by Austen's heroines. This is a new turn in the Austenesque. It follows a general change in the contemporary relationship with history, in which the moral and ethical shortcomings of the past, as seen from the present, are less likely to be forgiven. These new dramas solve the problem by becoming ahistorical, or else they employ a knowing tone, such that, to use Cracknell's words, we are somehow watching people trying to break out of their time. She adds, we are drawn to Anne Elliot because she is very gently testing and slightly mocking the world around her. The kind of playfulness seen in works such as Cracknell's Persuasion and Wade's The Watsons is to be expected at this particular point in the development of the Austenesque. The implicit rejection of the idea of the authentic is possible because the screen version of The Regency is so familiar that it has become a form in itself, or even a species of British mythology, a set of tropes that can be endlessly reinvented and reinterpreted. For the British, only two other historical periods have a similar status in popular culture. The Second World War, which is used to fantasise about a quite possibly illusory and certainly long gone moment of national virtue and greatness, and the Tudors, where ideas about sex, power and politics can be enjoyably worked through. The 21st century version of the Regency offers something else to our particular moment. A way of thinking about display, incredibly fine social distinction, ethics in relationships, 
and status anxiety, all of which seems well suited to our Instagram-saturated culture. And if it is a hallmark of Austin's world that her heroines have extremely limited decisions to make, that may, after all, be the perfect metaphor for a generation in their 20s and 30s who see their life choices equally limited, not by marriage prospects, but by a set of economic circumstances that seem just as uncontrollable and arbitrary. In the end, the stories written by Austin and by her many progeny are about women surrounded by artificial, sternly judgmental and deeply constraining patriarchal systems who struggle to break through them to find human connection and love. That struggle, as they say, continues. That was A Look Under the Bonnet, Why Our Fascination with the Regency Era in Jaws by Charlotte Higgins. Read by Evelyn Miller. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, recently, stand-up Joe Lysett revealed he was reported to police for a joke he used in one of his routines. On the surface, this may seem like a catastrophic sense of humour failure from the offended person in question. However, as Brian Logan argues, where there's comedy, cops have seldom been far away. Read by Dan Starkey. When news broke recently that comedian Joe Lysett had been reported to the police for a routine in his touring show, the joke was very much on the offended punter. Imagine someone calling the police over a joke they didn't like. Snowflakes everywhere, tweeted Lysett's fellow comic, Janie Godley, while the spectator fulminated, We need to kick the cops out of comedy. But where there's comedy, cops have seldom been far away. Trace their interactions over the years, and you find the art form sharpening its rebellious self-image, but also its role as a lightning rod for social anxieties. You'll find a few sense of humour failures too. Lysett has yet to reveal which particular joke prompted police interest. But my guess is, it's the home video he screens on stage of his childhood self, frolicking half-naked. Because images of child nudity are illegal, Lysett tells his audience, he has concealed his private parts in the film with a disproportionately large digital penis, or a giant donkey dick, as reported in last week's coverage. It's a cheerfully puerile visual gag, if not an obviously offensive one. But can we be surprised? After the recent furore around theatre production The Family Sex Show, for example, 
that there are people who might find Lysert's priapic tot too hot to handle. Comedy fans of my vintage will be reminded of Chris Morris's notorious Peter Geddon episode of the Channel 4 news spoof Brass Eye, a series, incidentally, that's far more confrontational and in-your-face than anything in 2022-era comedy. Following that broadcast, Scotland Yard considered prosecuting Channel 4 under the Protection of Children Act, with charges relating to the taking, making and showing of indecent photos of youngsters. No prosecution materialised, although the Nottinghamshire Police Vice Squad did nix a documentary they were making with the broadcaster, citing their disgust at the Brass Eye special. Comedy's defining brushes with the law, in the 1960s and 70s, also concerned indecency. Stand-up self-image has deep roots in the prosecutions of the American comics Lenny Bruce and George Carlin. 50s Hepcat and stand-up trailblazer Bruce was repeatedly arrested and tried for obscenity. Or, in the words of his prosecutor during a 1964 trial, for his nauseating word pictures interspersed with all the three- and four-letter words and more accurate ten- and twelve-letter ones spewed directly at the audience. Bruce was found guilty and died of a drugs overdose while on parole pending his appeal. Carlin's later Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television riff led to a legal fight between the Federal Communications Commission and a radio broadcaster that aired the routine, a case that went to the Supreme Court. FCC versus Pacifica, wrote Carlin in his autobiography, became a standard case to teach in communications classes and law schools. I take perverse pride in that. I'm actually a footnote in the judicial history of America. The court ruled he was being indecent, but not obscene. In such a context, to kick the cops out of comedy would be to divest the art form of its heroic history as a canary in the mind for social progress. But we don't live in the 1960s anymore, nor in the kind of state where comics are routinely harassed by the authorities. In Russia, a stand-up of Azerbaijani origin, Idrak Miraz Lizadeh, was sent down for ten days and later banned from the country for a joke allegedly inciting hatred against ethnic Russians. In Britain, however, comedians inciting ethnic hatred, as Jimmy Carr was accused of doing earlier this year with his jokes about the Nazi persecution of Roma people, don't get jailed, they get a Netflix special. One of comedy's signature brushes with the law came, not under a dictatorship, but in kindly Canada. Stand-up Mike Ward's offence was to tell jokes in 2010 about a disabled TV personality, the child singer Jeremy Gabriel, who has Treacher-Collins syndrome, which can affect facial bone structure and cause deafness. The singer's family filed a human rights complaint with the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. Ward lost, but then embarked on an 11-year legal battle to overturn the verdict. He also made a show about the case, aggressively promoting his own free speech warrior credentials. In 2021, Canada's Supreme Court ruled in the comedian's favour, judging his routine about Gabrielle to be nasty and disgraceful, but not illegal. Could such a case unfold in the UK? Of course, as Godley's snowflake tweet implies, 21st century Britain is far from an anything-goes stand-up Shangri-La. And while knee-jerk responses to the Lysett story assumed the complainant to be some kind of shrinking woke violet, right-wingers are just as apt to dial 999. Take Nigel Farage, who tweeted, This is incitement of violence and the police need to act. 
when Joe Brand joked on Radio 4 about throwing battery acid in the UKIP man's face. The Met investigated, but took no action. Furthermore, in the US, ex-Senate candidate Roy Moore tried to sue Sasha Baron Cohen after the comedian in his TV show Who is America used a fake paedophile detector on Moore, which beeped. The lawsuit was dismissed by a judge who described the segment as clearly a joke. Another recent dust-up, often cited as a comedy cause celebre, qualifies as such only if you consider Scottish YouTuber Count Dankula, aka Mark Meachin, to be a comedian, which he barely is. Meachin posted a video in 2016 showing himself teaching his girlfriend's dog how to perform a Nazi salute, and to react to the question, do you want to gas the Jews? He was fined £800 while the rest of us were subjected to comment pieces proclaiming his right to free, if unpleasant, speech. So much for affronts to public decency. But comedy is just as apt to run afoul of the law when private interests are at stake. See comic Stephen Grant's legal battle with his ex-wife, over the right to joke about her on stage. Or Sunder Kroonquist being sued in 2015 by her own mother-in-law for making too many, um, mother-in-law jokes. One reels to consider how the likes of Les Dawson might have fared in such a climate. But maybe that's the point. We all knew Dawson was joking. Whereas modern stand-up trades, more than before, in truth, autobiography and authenticity, rendering it more vulnerable to legal claims of this nature. One such was lodged by the ex-husband of comedian Louise Ray for defamation over jokes about him in her 2018 show. Described by a leading lawyer as a test case, the suit raised concerns among comics about restrictions to their right, a pretty fundamental one, to discuss their personal lives on stage. The fact that Ray's ex-husband dropped the case, and that most of these claims don't prosper, demonstrates the law's difficulty in pinning down live comedy. Here is an art form where context is everything, where what is said is not often what is meant. An art form that pretends to be telling the truth when it suits comedians to do so, but in which fact and fiction are constantly blurred for artistic effect. How do you legislate for that? I'm not sure you can. Many of the most exciting modern stand-ups, Stuart Lee, Jordan Brooks, a whole suite of intriguing US acts such as Kate Berlant, engage in a never-ending game of cat and mouse with who they really are and what they mean. And liveness is also an issue. A comedy show differs from one night to the next, according to the relationship established with the audience. As any stand-up will tell you, the context of a joke, its intention and impact, if not precisely its legality, can only be judged with any hope of accuracy by those people in the room for that particular gig. That's what makes the art form special. But it also makes it a minefield for the fuzz, as Lysett calls them. On what aspect of a comic's performance, after all, are they to focus their attention? The words, which aren't usually meant to be taken at face value? The perceived intent behind the irony? The body language? Or the giant pixelated penis? Which, let us remember, appears in Lysett's show precisely so that he doesn't break the law. Or, when he told us that, was he only joking? Either way, there's sure to be another comedy versus the law case coming along soon. If history shows how hard it is to regulate this most quicksilver of art forms, it also suggests that the police and the courts will be given ample opportunity to keep trying. That was Arrest That Joke, 
A history of gags so offensive that punters called the cops by Brian Logan. Read by Dan Starkey. Finally, it has been long debated whether or not daily washing with shampoo is good for your hair. With a seemingly infinite amount of products available for an equally diverse range of hair types, the hair care selection process can be overwhelming at the best of times. In this piece, Lisa Niven Phillips investigates one potential solution, the non-shampoo shampoo, read by Evelyn Miller. We all know the beauty industry is good at persuading us to buy things we don't need. But when it comes to shampoo, that's just basic cleanliness, right? Well, maybe not. A new breed of no-shampoo shampoos are creeping into bathrooms, born of the idea that traditional shampoo is bad for hair. There is some science to this. Most shampoos contain compounds called surfactants, which lift oily dirt away from the hair and scalp, allowing it to be easily rinsed away. Among those are the lathering agents called sulfates. Sodium lauryl sulfate, or SLS, is the most infamous, which strip your hair of its natural oils and moisture. Before you know it, you're compensating with conditioner or even hair masks every time you wash. Trapped in a Faustian pact with all sorts of products in a constant pursuit of perfectly conditioned hair. As a daily hair washer, I have always splashed out on decent shampoos. Many are sulfate-free, though they contain other detergents, but have started experiencing problems in the last few years. My hair is straight, medium-fine and reaches past my shoulders. I have oily roots, so a daily wash is essential, but this can leave the tips parched. My hair drinks up conditioner, but my hair can look like a scarecrow's if I wait too long between cuts. Plus, it takes forever to dry. To me, the idea of a shampoo that somehow isn't actually a shampoo is music to my ears, or perhaps hydration to my dry ends. Hair Story's new wash, one of the most popular products I tried, is free from sulfates and detergents, products that are supposedly harsh on the scalp. It uses plant oils and naturally derived fatty alcohols and needs to be massaged thoroughly into the scalp, left for a few minutes, then carefully rinsed away. Hair Story says its formula is also biodegradable and free of chemicals that harm the environment. The idea of turning your back on shampoo isn't a new one. There's a large online community devoted to the no-poo method. Skipping products altogether or replacing them with kitchen ingredients such as vinegar, baking soda or, gulp, raw eggs. Then there's co-washing, where you wash your hair with conditioner to reduce moisture loss, which originated in the African Caribbean community and has led to co-cleansers such as Diva Curl's No Poo. What sets these no-shampoo shampoos apart from co-washing is their promise to leave all hair types soft, clean and shiny, as well as regulating oil production. One of the weird things about them is that they don't lather, because they're free of water-soluble detergents. The creamy textures also make it difficult to work the products evenly across my scalp, so I end up using quite a lot on the first go. This is where I should mention that they don't come cheap – the ones I tried range from £23 for 200ml to £44 for a 236ml pouch. 
They also take ages to rinse out, which puts paid to my hopes for using less water and spending less time in the shower. Still, there's certainly demand for improved hair care. Maddie Malone, a beauty and personal care analyst at market research firm Mintel, tells me the UK women's hair care category is more robust than ever and has been since 2021. Presumably when we emerged from the pandemic and had to make ourselves presentable again. She points to a skinification of hair care, treating the scalp with the same care and focus as the rest of our skin. Malone says these new hybridised products prove her point, adding, Women show a willingness to trade up in this category, suggesting that hair care is still considered an affordable luxury. But while manufacturers equate no-shampoo shampoos with a healthier scalp, trichologists are less convinced. I'd say you're more likely to experience scalp problems from underwashing than overwashing, says Sarah Al-Khazraji, education manager at the Institute of Trichologists. In fact, an excess of these natural oils can lead to problems like dandruff and seboriac dermatitis, so they need removing to maintain a balanced ecosystem on the scalp. She often encounters patients who cut back on shampoo in the hope that their hair will learn to clean itself, a theory popular among no-pooers. She says, it's rubbish. It's the same as not vacuuming your carpet. There's nothing self-cleaning about it. Al-Karaji recommends shampooing hair like mine every day or two, but says textured or chemically processed hair could go longer between washes. Annabelle Kingsley, consultant trichologist, agrees. Your hair can't be trained to do anything because it's dead. Sure enough, after I use a few different no-shampoo shampoos for several days, my hair feels slightly greasy by the evening. This didn't happen with normal shampoos. It also seems to have lost its shine and has a slightly unappealing, lank texture. I also miss the smell of newly shampooed hair, since shampoo substitutes are largely fragrance-free. Kingsley is sympathetic, but not surprised. Some people get on with detergent-free shampoos, if their scalp doesn't get overly greasy, but they're certainly not for everyone. If people have used shampoo alternatives for months and like how their hair feels, that's great. Especially for those with coiled curl, afro or very curly hair, because these products probably won't tangle them in the way shampoo will as the cleansing agents are so mild. But they may not be as thorough at cleansing, and those oils will weigh down finer hair. For balance, the next morning I revert to my usual shampoo and conditioner. Once it's dry, somehow my hair feels even fresher and glossier than it did when I was using shampoo full-time, and I'm embarrassed to admit I can't stop touching it. After a little fine-tuning, I work out that I get my best hair from alternating products, with a shampoo substitute one day and a proper shampoo and conditioner the next. Everyone's hair is different, but this is what worked for mine. Have I saved time, money or shelf space? Absolutely not. But at least my hair feels less frazzled, healthier and, crucially, clean. That was, is it time to stop washing your hair? The rise of the no shampoo shampoo by Lisa Niven Phillips. Read by Evelyn Miller. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. 
If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Rachel Louise Miller, Dan Starkey and Evelyn Miller and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by George Cooper. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.